Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. We know at least one a day, at least one a day, a black person is being gunned down by law enforcement. And so one of our early priorities has to be about how do we just stem the tide of black bodies that are dropping on the streets of America. Journalist Manolia Charlatan talks with Kat Brooks, artist and organizer with Oakland's Anti-Police Terror Project, about how the Say Her Name movement is channeling the power of black love to stem the tide of police violence against black women. But first, we head to Jameson Robinson's home to talk with him about his sister, Yvette Henderson. I'm Marie Cha, and you're listening to Making Contact. This is her as, and she was young. I think she was about 11 years old. This is me and her. Yeah, I, I, we were going to, um, I think it was Disney on Ice, I remember. This is at the bar station. And that's about the uh, only picture I was able to find with me and her. And I, I, and I, I can remember that day like it was yesterday. Oh, yeah, this is her when she was a baby. It's still looking the same. Yeah, this is like one of the recent pictures of her. It was that smile. We're in Oakland, California, on a quiet street, just one block from a busy freeway and a big hospital. I'm sitting on Jameson Robinson's porch. He's swiping through photos on his phone. I had come to talk with him about his sister, Yvette Henderson. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> yeah, she was she she was always happy. Yes, I, I was like she did. She she was always happy, and then just just laughing and just smiling all the time, and just being goofy and funny. Our mom passed away. Uh, my mom passed away like in '89. You know, I was eight. She was thirteen. She took a big step as being, going from being just a little teenager and then realizing that her family is going to need her, you know, saying pretty soon because our mother was gone, our father father never really was around, but, and she just took on that role as being a mother, grandmother, you know, just, just all around good person. And I, you know, I just, I miss her a lot. From, from what I know, she was living a, a good life. You know, she had a she had a job, house, car. You know, she had her kids together. You know, a couple months prior to her passing away, she kind of there was some personal issues that led her to almost losing her job and her house and her car. She was staying with her friend for a little bit so she can, you know, save up her money and stuff and get it in another spot. But before she could make that move, everything changed. She breathed! Your dad woke up, take care of them babies, preparing their breakfast, preparing their 
she faced that day after run a few errands at home. That day, her errands included a stop at Home Depot. When Yvette was leaving the store, a security guard stopped her. He accused her of shoplifting and called the police. Hello, I'm security for Home Depot. I have a female shoplifter. She's being uncooperative. Doesn't want to come in. She's being uncooperative. Yeah. She's trying to get in her purse. She's wasting her time. Okay, you were doing. She's being uncooperative. Doesn't want to come back into the store. Yvette had sustained a head injury after security guards pushed her to the ground. She wanted an ambulance. She, uh, she also wants to request an ambulance. She said that she hit her head when she fell to the ground. She requests an ambulance? Yeah. Okay, we'll go ahead and get one of those started. Okay. Can you stay in the line? Sir? We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that she never made it to the ambulance. The security guard, the one who called 911, said that she ran from the store and pulled out a gun. She was trying to get on the bus. Are you going to send somebody over here? She pulled out a gun on us. An eyewitness told local news station KTVU. I just saw a lady, the bus was stopped behind Best Buy at the stop sign. And she was running, holding her purse, and waving her hand. And next thing I know, I see a police lady chasing her. On February 3rd, 2015, police officers shot and killed Yvette in broad daylight across the street from the Home Depot. She was 38 years old and a mother of four. She had just celebrated the birth of her first grandchild. I, um, I mean, I, I really didn't find out until the next day. You know, on the news, my, my auntie saw it on the news early that morning. I was basically asleep. My auntie called me and I Googled it on, on, um, on my phone. Police say she ran down Hollis under the 580 overpass while attempting to carjack at least three vehicles. Police say they ordered her to put down her weapon, and that's when she pointed it at them, and they opened fire. And then the stuff that they were seeing was kind of like, I, I didn't understand how they was trying to make it seem like she was just so, just, just deranged suspect that was out carjacking and, you know, just, I mean, she just dropped her kids off at school, like, a few hours before that, and, and, and I, I just didn't believe it, so I ended up Googling her name and reading all, whatever I can, just to come to the conclusion. That's when I came across Indy Bay, and I read about APTP. That was the only article that I believed that was questioning just how, how I was questioning. Like, what happened? Like, what, why, why did they, I mean, I mean, for one, they said that she was allegedly carjacking three cars. I mean, she's, she's a, a small woman, you know, she's about four eleven, five feet, and how they were saying that she allegedly pointed a weapon towards the cops, and I'm, I'm just like, that, that sounds, I mean, if you knew her, if you know her like anybody else knows her, that, that, that just sounds just unbelievable. That's when I investigated my own way, trying to see if there was uh, videotape, any witnesses that was there. Jameson began by reaching out to the Anti-Police Terror Project, a local organization that, among other things, trains people to be community first responders when the police kill someone. The officers that killed Yvette had been wearing body cameras, and the stores had video surveillance 
both inside and outside. With the support of APTP and other local organizations, he began demanding the release of the video footage and the coroner's report. For months, people held vigils and marches, shut down the Home Depot, created street theater. See, when a black woman runs for her life, the world won't stop for her. She bangs on their windows, begging for her life, but they just go along by. The bus surely will stop. But the sister driving the bus was scared of her sister that day. Hungry, thirsty, hungry. Hungry, thirsty, hungry. They fear black women while glorifying the stereotype of her anger. Power is what black lives hold. Melanated female with power and gold. Yes. Yvette! After two months, the Oakland Police Department allowed Yvette's family and their lawyer to view the video footage. Because everything they were saying, that there was no video camera from extra storage place, which, which was the most critical footage where it was like right in front. There was no footage from that. The body camera was off on both of the officers or whatever. And, and to me, it makes me feel like they try to cover it up, you know, trying to make it, trying to make her seem a certain type of way just for them to make it look good for the police or whatever, or just to make them feel like it was justified, you know. Because I don't understand why they can, how they just killed her like that. And then with an AR-15, which was like just overkill. Yvette's family pressed even harder to get the coroner's report. They mobilized to city council meetings and protested outside the police stations. It shouldn't have took that long. It took really like almost like eight to nine months. And I just basically wanted answers and wanted the truth. And, you know, not, not no cover-up, not no if ands, maybes, not no allegedly, just the truth. When the sheriff finally released the coroner's report, the results were shocking. Dan Siegel, the attorney for Yvette's family, reviewed the coroner's report and found that there was no evidence to suggest that she was an imminent threat to police officers or that she was even facing them when they killed her. Uh, the evidence that we have gathered so far indicates that the officers were absolutely under no threat at all at the time they fired at Ms. Henderson. They hit her at least three times. None of the shots were in the front of her body. They were in her back and in her side. They shot her to death. There, again, no evidence that any of them were at risk because of any action that she took. Yvette's brother, Jameson, says this experience has changed the way he sees things. Don't believe everything you hear on the media. So, I, mean, I mean, sometimes you have to go and do your own research. Just keep fighting for justice, that's it. You know, just keep fighting and don't, don't give up. Don't let down, because the moment we let down is the moment they're going to keep, keep going for it. Yvette Henderson's name has faded from the headlines. But in cities across the country, black women, many of whom have been on the front lines of the movement for black lives, are continuing to lift up the names of their sisters killed by police. This March, Manolia Charlatan, a multimedia journalist with the Media Consortium, and Kat Brooks, artist and organizer with Oakland's Anti-Police Terror Project, sat down at a community event in San Francisco to talk about Say Her Name 
and what it looks like to build a movement that centers black women. Kat began by talking about her own family. You know, I was raised in a radical family. Uh, my mom was a radical feminist. My father was the first black stagehand in Las Vegas. I was born and raised in Las Vegas. Back then, it was a very small town. You get anywhere mm -hmm. in minutes. Very segregated town, right? And so my early experiences with the police were watching them beat up my dad. And then my dad was stolen from me by America's concentration camps when I was eight. And so that forever altered my view of law enforcement. So anyway, flash forward, you know, I got radicalized in college like everybody else. And then um, was really doing work in Los Angeles about a, around a bunch of issues that impact the quality of black life in America. And then Oscar got murdered in 2009. And um, I don't know what it was, but it was like I had a laser focus. I was like, this is it. I'm gonna put my life on the line for this, this baby boy. And uh, it's sort of been a journey ever since. I hear you, Ashe. Um, one of the challenges that we have as women of color is how do we center narratives of women of color who were brutalized by the system? Like we know the names of the, of the boys, but what about the names of our girls? What are some of the work that you think still needs to be done? And what are some of the work that you think has already started to, to begin to, to center women in these narratives? So I think I'll start with the latter. You know, we've got the Say Her Name movement, which really is a movement now. You know, last year, there was a National Day of Action where the names of women who've been murdered by police were lifted up in some really amazing ways. And it gave birth to these forums that are happening across the country. We just had one in o Oakland at the Impact Hub, packed house, six panels on the different ways in which violence against black women's bodies happen. Um, you have testifiers and commissioners, one of the most powerful events I've ever been a part of. And you just left there both full because of who was in the room and drained, right, to sit inside of that much pain. Speaking of pain, one of the challenges we've had on social media is when younger people of color are pushing sort of video and images of state-sanctioned or, you know, vigilante attacking a person of color or brutalizing or killing a person of color on video, that they're sharing that and now we're seeing in the movement that folks are saying, wait a minute, don't rush to share that because that you're further brutalizing folks. Do you have a, any thoughts around the use of social media to help get some of these stories and images out there, but also that it can also have a triggering effect for folks to see? Because as a black person, you're seeing someone who looks like you being brutalized and it's on your feed. You know, like every time a new, there's a new name, you're reliving the trauma. Can you talk about how those two things are, stand next to each other? I think social media is where this, you know, th these two or three generations standing side by side, it's where we're at, right? It is propelling the movement in ways that even just in, you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't have imagined. I think it's a critical tool. For all of its drama and stuff, I'm a fan of black Twitter. Yes. You know, I just think it's yes. just one of the best things we have. Because black Twitter, to be frank, is like black church. Listen. It's like the black club. It's like the black, you know, the skating rink. But the, it's basically, we're doing what we do. We, we're socializing publicly. And we have a platform to tell our stories and our voices or our 140 characters, right? Whatever that is. 
a way to connect with each other in real time about the struggle that we're experiencing, our shared struggle in this country. So I, I think that social media is critical. I've seen the comments about don't share the images. I guess because I recognize that if those images weren't shared, right, if Oscar faced down with his hands behind his back, if that image had not gone viral, mm -hmm. right, we would not have seen the movement. If people weren't talking about Ferguson and showing Mike Brown's body lay in that street for four hours, we wouldn't have the movement that we had. And so I appreciate the trigger warnings, right, that that's become a practice on social media. Warning, you know, this is a trigger. And I think we've got to share more. I think there's still, even in the midst of, of this national, international movement for black life, there's still people that will look you in your, my neighbor, will look me in my face and say, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not really happening. Black people aren't experiencing anything worse than anyone else, right? And we forget that because my feed is all political people that share my political views, right? I forget I have to go outside and talk to Aunt Margaret about what's really, what the rest of the world is seeing. Yeah, I mean, so I shared this with a couple of my colleagues. Um, I spent a really, Surreal weekend with um, uncle of my partner who is a brown man who is a Trump supporter. One of the things that came out of that conversation for me was there's so much anger towards these young black people who are saying no, no more of this and we're going to be on the street, you're going to see us. There's so much anger at them. Can you talk about the channeling of that anger, you know, of channeling, whether it's white anger, whether it's just anger that we're living in a country that's very unjust economically for a lot of people, or there's lack of mobility, whatever it is, there's so many leaders' capacity to channel that anger against people who are fighting for their liberation. You know, how, do you, how effective... Oh, I had this aha moment a couple of years ago, because I, I do, I, I really try to think through why people push back on what to me makes total sense, right? Um, how anybody could be angry at people saying, stop killing us. And then I had this aha moment when I was talking to this reporter. Americans, white Americans in particular, are very invested in this belief of America as the home of the brave, the land of the free, where everybody has opportunity. It's not just, like for us, I'm, I'm assuming you're in this camp too, those are just words that I grew up hearing, right? That's never been my reality here. It's not anything I'm attached to. I couldn't have put it into words when I was a kid, but I knew it was garbage, right? White Americans, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them, that is a part of their identity. That is who they are at their core. That is ingrained in what they believe about themselves, their family, their own ability to be upwardly mobile. That's what allows them to say, we are the greatest country on earth. The movement for black lives mm -hmm. is challenging that. So it's not just challenging a concept, you're challenging someone's in identity. I think that people like Donald Trump are savvy about that, right? And I actually think that Donald Trump is reacting to the same thing, right? Um, and some other stuff. That's the, what they're united around, right? Our America, this image of our America and our greatness. And I think that's a really powerful motivator and very dangerous, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because what do you do when someone challenges your identity? Everything that you know to be real and true. The Klan does it. 
White supremacy groups do it. They find the disenfranchised. They find the young people that are on the streets and angry about so many things, mm -hmm. right? And then they channel that anger into a hate, right, of this other. Mm. This other that they can blame for everything that's gone wrong in their lives. Mm. Mm. I was thinking about this earlier, um, about the channeling of that. And what I think the movement for black lives is, it's channeling black love. Yes. Because you have to love yourself to say, my life matters and therefore your life matters, right? And if I'm gonna be in solidarity, we've seen the solidarity, what it can do in action, for instance. I'm, you know, I live in Chicago, even though I'm from New York, from Brooklyn, Republic of Brooklyn. But living in Chicago, I have a, a whole newfound respect for the legacy of young people fighting against the system. So Anita Alvarez is the prosecutor that enabled the cover-up of the young man who was shot 16 times. His name is Laquan McDonald. We lift his name. And these are young black people with hardly any budget. They organized and said, this prosecutor has to go. They had a campaign. And the black establishment, the black political establishment was like, these little, where are these little kids coming from? Like, what are y'all doing? You know, that's not how we do things here. We, if the mayor invites you for a private backroom talk, you say, you go talk to the mayor, you know, and these black, these black kids are like, no, we're not going to do that. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That doesn't yield anything. And, you know, we, we also hear this narrative that these young people, they have no focus. You know, they're just out in the streets marching, disrupting, you know, stopping folks that they don't respect law enforcement. Well, if they had no focus, how are they removing prosecutors? Right? So this movement is focused and organized. Listen, shutting down um, BART stations and freeways on critical days about interrupting economic flow, right? On Oakland knows up, about that. Right? On big shopping days, that's not just something that happened, right? Like right. folks are tactical and they're strategic and they're organizers and they're passionate and it's amazing. It is. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. We have to celebrate the wins. You know, I got to just respect Let's to Chicago, to Cleveland, and to Oakland. Shut it down. If you're just tuning in to Making Contact, we're listening to a conversation between journalist Manolia Charlatan and Kat Brooks, artist and organizer with Oakland's Anti-Police Terror Project, about the Say Her Name movement. Walk us through what you see as alternatives to the current law enforcement systems. Like, what can law enforcement be doing differently that can value the citizens' and residents' lives? And what are some of the things that you are fighting for with your project and your initiative? Sure, so I think I should just first be really transparent. I actually don't believe that law enforcement in this country will ever do right by black people or brown people or disenfranchised people or poor people. It's not broken. It is doing exactly what it was designed to do, right? The first police officers were slave catchers and their job was to hunt, incarcerate and or kill black people and they are still hunting, incarcerating and or killing black people. So I just need to preface this with that. That said, we have a crisis in this country, right? We know at least one a day, at least one a day, a black person is being gunned down by law enforcement. And so one of our early priorities has to be about how do we just stem the tide of black bodies that are dropping on the streets of America. And for the interim, that's gonna take radical reforms, right? And we have to get behind some of these radical reforms. So I think some of that does look like use of force policies. Some of that does look like body cameras. Some of that does look like calling for 
these police officers to be incarcerated. I sat on a panel with a black police chief from um, Portland and I was supposed to talk about what law enforcement could do. And this brother actually said almost everything on my list, but the thing that shocked me the most that we both had on our list was apologize. It's not about admitting right or wrong or saying you know, that it was a justified shoot or not. It's just acknowledging that we are human beings and that this trauma has hit our community and being sorry for that. It's about having some humanity, having enough humanity to recognize the humanity in the communities that you're policing and patrolling. So that's some, right, accountability, because I, I truly believe that the only way that the police are gonna stop killing us is when we stop engaging with them. So part of the mission of the Anti-Police Terror Project is divestment, divestment from the system as it is and investment in empowering the people to take care of ourselves. We believe firmly that it's a lie that the only way that we can be safe is in this current paradigm of policing and prisons. We don't believe that that's true. There's examples like the Zapatistas that, you know, where there's alternate methods. And we recognize that we've got a lot of work to do to convince the masses, <laughs> right, that this paradigm is a lie, right? And it's hard work, even for us. So we've got a no calling the police ever policy. And, and I say that very easily. It's very hard in practice. We work with community accountability circles when there's intercommunal drama or violence or interpersonal violence. We've got a security team that's working on a model in the Laurel in Oakland where the business owners call them and not the police very often. And then creating a support network for families when they are terrorized by police violence because when we looked around, we realized that not only is their loved one stolen, there's nowhere to go. They can't get victims of crime compensation. There's no one trying to find out who killed right, their loved one and or bring that person to justice. And then well-meaning activists like ourselves put their face on a banner and take to the streets and the family's like, what happened? So we think putting some policies in place for how you do that is also critical. So let's talk about the community accountable circles. This is fascinating to me because this is happening across the country where communities of color are taking accountability into their own hands. So if you think about, for instance, alternate economic models like a SUSU, where folks don't go to a traditional bank, but they they borrow and lend from each other, uh, I feel like this, this sort of community approach to accountability. Can you talk a little bit about how does that work in practice? Like if, if you can give us an example of a recent sort of interpersonal, violent or just disruption that was better solved and addressed by the community circle coming together. Sure, so first I just wanna say it's not a perfect science, right? Like there's no book that says this is how you do this and it will work, it's one size fit all, right? You've got different incidents, you've got people have their different emotional traumas. I mean, it's, it's a lot. What it is is a commitment by everybody involved that no matter what, we will not engage the state it is a commitment by everybody involved to commit the resources and the time and the follow-up. So we did have an incident of interpersonal violence and all of the parties were very committed to not you know, engaging the state. And so we called on elders. We called on support for both parties, right? And this is where checking your own stuff becomes really important, right? Because we are talking about inner you know, personal violence, people have opinions about that and strong feelings about that. We had DV experts in the room, we had spiritual healers in the room, we had a very wide range of folks. 
and we provided space for both folks to tell their stories separately, right? And both folks to say what they needed in order to achieve resolution. And we're actually still in the process of negotiating those needs on both sides, right? While having some uh, agreements about who will be in what rooms. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Nicolo Scoleri scored the music for the Yvette Henderson story. The music on today's show included Railroad Whiskey Co. by Jazzar, Light Livid by Pluribel, We Comin' by Reverend Seku and the Holy Ghost, and Derailed by Blue Dot Sessions. The interview with Manolia Charlatan and Kat Brooks was recorded by the California Center for Integral Studies Public Programs and their sound engineers, Narayan Khalsa, Alexandra Toledo, Clara Lindstrom, and Britta Conroy Randall. Thanks to Kelsey Mays for her help with audience engagement around this show. To download a copy of this program or to subscribe to our podcast, check us out at radioproject.org. Lisa Redman is our executive director. Our producers are Monica Lopez, Jasmine Lopez, and RJ Lozada. Quan Booth is our digital content and community engagement manager. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.